0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: One of the best ways to sort of dig down and think about this is to think about ordering in a a restaurant. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm sure you know these people who like, I mean, literally they're trying to solve, you know, relativity or something like that. It's like 20 minutes for them to try to yeah. decide. And it's like, they're asking you, like, what do you think? What should I order? They're asking the waiter, like, what, you know, which, between these dishes, like, which one would you have? Um, <laughs> right. Um, but this is actually, this is actually quite a lot of people are, are doing this. Right. And so it, I, I think that it, if they just stopped and said to themselves, you know, what are the stakes of this decision? Like, well, first mm-hmm. of all, it's low stakes on its face because you're going to eat another meal in like six hours.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: so like, you're going to get another try really fast. Um, But the other thing is, I, this is, I think, a really important question to ask yourself. Whatever the result of this is, do I think in the future, like let's say in a week, as I look back on my happiness over the week, that how... The chicken was versus the fish is it going to have ticked my happiness up or down at all.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Annie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So, uh, as I was saying right before we hit record here, uh, yeah. I had stumbled on your book, thinking in bets. And I remember adding it to my list on Amazon. I was like, I got to read this book. And then when I finally read it, I was like, okay, I have to get in touch with you because I have so many questions now <laughs> after reading this. But before we get into your book and, and your work, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and career?
1: Oh my gosh. I, can I just tell you're like literally the only person who's ever asked me that. And, uh, It's actually a a very, it's a really important impact that they Mm -hmm. had. And it's probably in an unexpected way. So my uh, parents met um, in graduate school. My father had gone to law school and about a year in, he just decided like it wasn't for him that his passion was teaching and particularly his passion was English literature. So he he then switches to the masters program in English lit. My mom um and dad actually meet over a game of bridge because my dad pulled her out of the hallway and said we need a fourth do you happen to play bridge which I think is kind of funny since obviously <laughs> I ended up being a poker player and, and my brother was a <laughs> card player as well but at any rate so that's strange. And so that's how they met. Um anyway, uh-huh. my dad gets a job up um at coming out of uh the master's program, uh, he gets a job at a um, prep school in New England. So this was in 1961. Uh, it's an Episcopalian prep school, St. Paul's school. Uh, he's like, they decide they need diversity, so they hire him because he's Jewish. Um, and off he goes to, to teach at this prep school. What's interesting about my father's story is that his father uh, had emigrated to the U.S., when he was a child and had never gotten past sixth grade. So it's kind of this interesting, like, you know, his dad, his dad never finished his sixth grade. And now his son gets a master's ended up teaching at this, you know, private school. Um, my dad did actually end up getting a PhD um, in English. He taught at that school forever that allowed his children to go to that school for free which made a really big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother had a master's in, uh, I think in history, actually she taught for a couple of years, but ended up being stay at home after that. Um, and then my dad starts writing a column for the newspaper, like the local newspaper in Concord, New Hampshire. He, some, some publisher then finds his columns, thinks they're cool. asks him if he would write a book. He does. It's called anguished English it becomes like a big bestseller. And my dad now like has written like 30 books or something like that. You can look him up as wow. Richard Letterer. So I've heard of that book actually. Yes, Anguished <laughs> English. That's my dad. Yeah. Um, okay. That's so that's what they, do. so my mom is basically stay at home. You know, my dad's really an English teacher. Eventually when I'm old, this is when I'm much older. So I think of him as a teacher, he becomes, he becomes a writer and then, and then does some speaking. Um, mm-hmm. So I, in high school was, very math oriented. But my parents who were both like, my mom was a history major. My dad was an English major. Everything in my family was really around like liberal arts and like particularly humanities. And there was like this, I I don't, I don't know if they intended this, but there was this very deep value communicated around the humanities. So I'm in high school. By the time I finished high school, I finished calculus too. I go off to college and it's just sort of assumed I'm going to become an English major. This is the assumption in the family. This is what I do. I'm go off. i an English yeah. major. Now I also backdoored into a double major in psychology, but I didn't really pursue math. And I think, I think it just goes to show you like these, these influences that you don't even realize are happening in your life. Right. Because I look back on that and I think, wow, if I had a child who was, who was, sort of that far along in math, I would have been encouraging them in college to pursue this. Meanwhile, in college, I take zero math classes. And I look back on that. And that's one of my really big regrets. Like I wish I wish that I had pursued math in some way. So anyway, I that obviously ends up having this very strange influence on me because it, it pushes me over to this other thing, which probably ended up working out because that, that now I obviously develop writing skills through that. But I now end up with this convergence of psychology and English lit, um, end up going to graduate school in psychology and then discovered pretty quickly that the writing skills were actually really, really helpful um, in graduate school in terms of being able to communicate ideas. That was all great. Um, and then at the end of graduate school, I get sick. Um, I need to take time off before I go, go and become a professor. And then now, now finally, <laughs> now many years later, I find my way back to math. So oh. my father, you know, be damned. I I, <laughs> I found my way back to doing math.
0: So I wonder, as somebody who who went through our public school system, uh, I'm always curious what the, the sort of version of school or ex- education is like for somebody who gets to be in that kind of an environment. Like, what impact does that have? Because you mentioned that that played a significant role. And <clears throat> when you've been in that kind of environment, I wonder... When you see something like the college admissions scandal, you know what is your reaction to it?
1: Yeah. So, so first of all, I actually have this interesting juxtaposition because up until tenth grade, um, I actually was in the public school system in New Hampshire, and it was somewhere near fiftieth in the country. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I it was it was really like whoa. Now I'm in a different kind of school. Um, so, the the school that I went to. I mean, it's, it's indescribable what the education is like there. You know, you're basically doing liberal arts college as high school. I mean, it's like a small, it's 500 kids. There were like 70 faculty for the 500 kids classes had, you know, the math classes had a few more, you know, more people in them, maybe, you know, 15 people in them or 20 maximum in the math classes. And then the humanities classes, you'd have like six people in the class. So, so much like individual attention, so much college preparatory work. Uh, In an English class, you were expected to read about 150 pages a week. Uh, It was a paper a week. So, I mean, this is really like getting you ready for college. And then, you know, when you go to college, the first two years are, are almost like repetition. Mm-hmm. of what you already did. So so that's that's the first thing is that it like completely prepares you. But here here is here's the thing where I think about the college admission scandal is I think that my experience at St. Paul's shows why what the college admission scandal <laughs> tells you is that you should actually keep the SAT and not get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um and the the reason being that at 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 the time in my class of 120 kids, 71 kids went to Ivy League schools. And the reason that those 71 kids went to Ivy League schools were, yes, they, you know, they were getting a a really good education and I'm sure that our SATs coming out of that school were kind of better than average, but that's not why we were getting into those. That's, that's not why that number got into the schools. It was because every single admissions agent, every single admissions person at each of the Ivy League schools had a very deep and long relationship with the admissions people at my school so they could just literally like call them up on the phone and say i here's the people who are going to apply i you know you should really take them um so i think about this college admission scandal and it's actually this thing about like how are you thinking about the world and how are you sort of getting past your initial reaction right so people looked at that and they said we have to get rid of the sat obviously because look at these people they have gamed it and they have cheated it and as someone who thinks about game theory I say, no, that's actually exactly the opposite. The fact that they had to game it in order to gain admission to these schools shows why it's actually a really great gatekeeper. Because if you're thinking about someone like, uh, you know, Lori Laughlin, who's married to a billionaire, that, you know, the, the daughter is like famous, any school would die to have that person on their campus. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously they're trying to get that person on their campus. The fact that the, that grades and SATs created a barrier such that that family felt like they had to cheat actually shows that that creates a really good barrier. And when mm-hmm. we think about what are the other things betri- besides an SAT that a school is using in order to decide whether to have somebody, you know, come in the gates. Um, well, we think about extracurriculars, Right. And if you look at what an upper middle class family is spending on extracurriculars and enrichment activities compared to a family that's lower class, they have a 10 to 1 outspend. I think it might even be an 8 to uh, uh, an 11 to 1 outspend. So mm-hmm. I think that the upper middle class family is spending between $7 and $8,000 per year on extra, you know, extracurriculars and enrichment and the lower class family is spending about 700. So until working at like McDonald's becomes an acceptable enrichment and extracurricular activity, you know, because a lot of those kids have to work in the afternoon, right. That, that upper middle-class kids don't have to do. The parents can't spend in order to create that kind of like, you know, broadly experienced sort of whole child, right. That, that admissions people are, are, are sort of using as part of the, um, Admissions—that's where you see that there's like this un—it's almost ungameable, right? Because it's just sort of built in that the more of the stuff you do, the better. Mm-hmm. So I I look at that and I say, well, you should do things to try to make it harder to cheat on the SAT mm-hmm. and then keep it. The other thing is that there actually—and uh, there was actually a great thread on Twitter from Jay Van Bavel that shows that there actually isn't really any good. Scientific data that shows that the um, that the tutoring really ups your score a lot. So there's a lot of like anecdotal data from tutors themselves saying like, oh, you you know, I had this kid who got a 200 point increase. But uh, there's no scientific data that actually supports that that you get a really that you get a really significant jump in your score with tutoring. And the other thing is that now the College Board is creating partnerships in order to make um, SAT tutoring accessible and free. So for example, now Khan Academy has a partnership so that it's just accessible to anybody if they want to, you know, if they want to work to get tutoring on how to take the test and so on and so forth. So, so you can actually solve for that. You can, you can make that kind of stuff accessible. Um, but what it proves is that if your kid's not getting a great SAT score, There's not a lot you can do to get that score up a lot besides cheating. Mm -hmm. So I I think that that actually helps to even the playing field so that, you Mm -hmm. know, people from St. Paul's don't just get the chance to have the admissions person like call up and say, hey, let this person in. And, And that's actually lessened over time. So for example, by the time that my sister, who's seven years younger than I am, um, by the time she graduated from St. Paul's, out of 120 kids, it was 40 kids going to Ivy Leagues. And mm-hmm. now if you look at those statistics, it's much less because over time, that just sort of like pipeline, people have become more aware of that and it started to get reduced and it is much more, it has become much more based on like just what are your grades and what are your SATs? Hi,
3: I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. It's funny because I, I look at Berkeley now and even my sister and I both went to Cal and we both <laughs> say, you know, we would probably never get in right now Right? Uh, with that we had in high school. Like there's no way uh, because it's become so much more competitive. So I wonder as, as somebody who, you know, was raised by academics, um, you know, comes from a, a Jewish family, which I, I from the conversations that I've had with other Jewish people on this show, sounds like, you know, you get raised with very similar narratives to Indian parents. What in the world was the response from your parents when you said, you know what, I'm going to go and play poker?
1: Yeah. So, so I was, I had the advantage of my brother already having broken their spirit. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> before I went off. So, so like, just, just, uh, you know, to your point about like kind of what was the ethic in the household. Um, I remember coming back from, gosh, I think it was in junior high. Um, at, you know, at this, you know, like bottom rank junior high school in New Hampshire. Um, and I came back to, and I remember saying to my mother, um, Hey, my friends, like their parents, all give them, um, like five dollars for every a they get like and i was asking like do you do you think i could like have the same deal and her response uh-huh. i'm telling you this is a quote her response was why would i do that you're a letterer what else would you get
0: like, <laughs> well i've had that exact conversation with my dad uh by the way and my dad said you get a meal on the table and a roof over your head this conversation is over like, <laughs> I was like, all right
1: I'm not sure. I I don't know. I think that would have been better for my psyche. It was just literally this idea, like, well, the the A is like that's the the expectation. Like below that is just failure. You should be paying me, lady.
2: Yeah. Whoa.
1: Okay. So yeah. So what happened was that my brother, um, so uh, my brother graduated from St. Paul's. He got into uh he got into Columbia you know, as one does from St. Paul he's just like, okay, off to your Ivy league school. Um, and, uh, and he deferred a year. So he defers a year, moves off to New York to study with a grandmaster in chess, because he, he had started playing chess when he was like 13 or 14, really, really into it. Um And started, uh, you know, doing some stuff on like the tournament circuit. So uh, I think he got up to, he got up to a master. he did get a master rating. Um, so he's now, ta- so he then decided he want, really wanted to pursue that. He had been like doing tournaments during the summers, uh, during high school, takes the year off, goes to study with a grandmaster, And during that year he starts playing poker and he basically ends up never going back to school. I mean, he did, he actually, he, I think a few years later he did like six months or one or two semesters at Columbia, but that was it. He never, he never actually finished. So he, he started playing poker at that point. So by the time I start playing poker, it's, he's been playing for 10 years professionally already. So like I say, the spirit had already been broken (laughs) by the time I came around. I will tell you though, that my father for my whole adult life has said to me I would say five times a year or so uh-huh. oh are you going to finish that phd <laughs> you know and 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 for a long time i was like eh, don't really see why i need it now i'm actually yeah. now i'm actually back to doing some academic research so so I'm sort of leaving it open-ended as whether that ends up in a PhD. Um, Uh But I am, I'm doing, I'm doing the research for it because there's actually two different things that I'm doing about questions that I just find incredibly interesting to me. And I thought, well, I, I can actually find out the answers to these through using science. Um, So, so I I may actually end up, we'll we'll see if I do that for my dad and then my dad can, you know, he can finally, (laughs) he can finally leave the leave this earth. Yeah. Feel like, feeling like that, you know, his child has accomplished what he always dreams for.
0: Uh, yeah, don't feel bad. I had a friend who, whose mother told him, and when we were in high school, if you want me to go to my grave in peace, you'll become a doctor.
1: Oh my gosh, there you go, there you go. I mean,
2: and by so. the way, it's
1: like it's. I have a master's. Like my my uh-huh. my sister has an MFA. You know, maybe this could make them happy. But he's, he seems yeah. to be very focused on the PhD. But.
0: Well I, I think that actually makes a perfect segue to talking about this whole idea of making decisions uh because you know, as we were talking about before we hit record here i I think one of the the strangest things about the way we start making decisions is how early we make such consequential decisions with no real validity to the data that we have yeah you know you go into to college and they're like these are the majors, these are the potential careers it leads to hopefully you like it if it if you don't life sucks so I, I kind of wonder you know starting at that point. You know, how, when you are working with such limited information, uh can you make better decisions or do you just fuck it up and then say, okay, you know what, now I can go back and fix it?
1: Yeah. So, so the, I mean, it's, I, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, as I said to you before, before we hit record, oh, I wish you could overhear my conversations with, I have four children, two of whom are in, uh, actually three of whom are in college, but uh two of them. I'm thinking about this issue of majors right now and, and the amount of stress (laughs) is like, Oh my gosh. And, and most of my conversation with them is it doesn't really matter. Like, don't worry about it. Like, whatever you're majoring in, it's, it's so kind of irrelevant to what you're going to end up doing. And the chances Mm -hmm. that the chances that in 15 or 20 years, you know, you're doing something that you would have predicted that you were doing when you're 18 is just like so incredibly small. Yeah. So, um, so I'm always just sort of like trying to calm them down. It's like major in whatever. Make sure that you're really good with, you know, uh you know, creating relationships with your teachers, I think is incredibly important with your professors. Um you know, have really great relationship with your peers because you should just have friends. You're in college, like have fun. Mm -hmm. Um You know, make sure that your grades are good enough. Um, You know, and then afterwards, you're going to try a bunch of stuff out. And it's all good because you have so much time to change your mind. And I think that this is actually really important in terms of thinking sort of just, how do you figure out what's a decision that I'm supposed to take a lot of time on versus what's a decision that I should like decide, you know, I can decide quickly and I can be nimble and kind of figure this out. Yeah. And it, 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 you can broadly think about it as a question about the stakes of the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we, so what we can think about is sort of the first, the first thing is um, what's the cost to reverse? Like what's the cost to me to reverse? So we can think about costs as obviously like money or, or time, um, those kinds of things. And so you can kind of ask like, well, really, is there, is there a big cost to me to reverse this decision? And certainly when you're talking about somebody who's in their twenties, who's just out of, you know, college, um, who's going to be entering a job at the entry level, there isn't a whole lot of cost to reverse, right? You go, you go try a job. If it doesn't work out, it's not really a big deal. Mm -hmm. Because you're just, you're just, ent- you just go into another entry level position and it's not like, you know, I mean, I see all sorts of people in finance, you know, getting hired who actually like have history degrees, right? For example, yeah. like you don't necessarily need to have a degree in the thing that you're being hired for because they, they're recognizing that you're young. And as long as you're a really good thinker, you know, and you present well and you interview well, that they're probably going to be able to teach you whatever it is that they need to teach you specifically for whatever it is that you're going to be doing. And mm-hmm. if you need further schooling, they, they may suggest that and help you with that anyway. So when you're really young, there's, there's this very low cost to reverse. Um, you can sort of be, you know, more, you can more, be more sort of risk seeking and take some more gambles and sort of try stuff. You know, obviously like when you're 60, that, that's a whole different story. Like losing your job when, when you're 60 or, or being out of work for a little while or having to change careers, like that's a whole different thing but certainly when you're 20 the cost to reverse isn't really big. So like I think like one of the best ways to sort of dig down and think about this is to think about ordering in a in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So like the, I'm sure you know these people who like I mean literally it, they're trying to solve you know relativity or something like that. It's like 20 minutes for them to try to yeah. decide and it's like they're asking you like what do you think what should I order? They're asking the waiter like what, you know what do you- between these dishes, like which one would you have? Um <laughs> right. Um but this is actually this is actually quite a lot of people are are doing this, right? And so i I think that if they just stopped and said to themselves, you know, what are the stakes of this decision? Like, well, first mm-hmm. of all, it's low stakes on its face because you're gonna eat another meal in like six hours. Mm-hmm. So like you're gonna get another try really fast. Um But the other thing is, this is, I think, a really important question to ask yourself. Whatever the result of this is, do I think in the future, like let's say in a week, as I look back on my happiness over the week, that how the chicken was versus the fish is going to have ticked my happiness up or down at all, as I judge sort of like what's my (laughs) overall happiness over the week? And the answer is, of course not. Right? I mean, It's silly. So like once you sort of broadly divide the menu up into here, here's stuff I like and here's stuff I don't like, All um, right. you really shouldn't be taking too much time with it. So I've been trying to think about like, well, why do people seem to take so much time with that? But maybe like, I mean, in some cases, like they take less time trying to figure out who to marry than they do. <laughs> That's what I've heard.
2: Right? right.
1: Then they do ordering in a restaurant. And, yeah. and I think it's because the decision space of like, what should I order off the menu seems really well-defined right? Uh Like my options are very clearly defined. I don't have to guess at what those are. I know a whole lot about what I like and what I don't like. And it feels like it should be knowable how good the dish is, Mm -hmm. right? It feels like that should be knowable. I mean, obviously you're trying to figure out the intersection of your likes and sort of how good the dish is. Um, You know, and and broadly, like, I guess if you ask the waiter, you're going to find something about in general, how people like it, right? Which might Maybe help you, but, but it feels like you're answering a question like two plus two equals four, right? (sighs) Where now it feels like you've really reduced the uncertainty and and it's, it's such a defined decision that I think people spend a lot of time on it because they think there's an answer. Whereas Mm -hmm. when there are other decisions that you can be grappling with, um, it's, it's much more, it's much less defined. Like, it, when you sort of take the whole life cycle of the decision, it's like, what knowledge do I have that I should bring to bear on this decision? That's not always clear. When you're dealing with a menu, it is right. Mm -hmm. what, What are my experiences with chicken in the past? I should think about that. Um, what are my different options that that's also not necessarily clear, right? Uh, if I think about like, what would I like or what don't I like, what are my values? What is a good outcome? How often Might I get a good outcome out of these different options? I mean, now it becomes very opaque and very uncertain. And you have to really like live in this uncertainty as you're trying to work that through. And one of the Mm -hmm. ways to get out of uncertainty is just to decide, which is why I think that sometimes like this pain of sort of like an open ended question, particularly one that might not resolve very quickly, which, which obviously when you're in a restaurant, it resolves fast. Um, one that might not resolve very quickly that people will find ways to kind of clamp down on the uncertainty. Um, and one of those ways is just to, just to decide. Um, mm-hmm. so actually, actually I was thinking about, so, so first of all, you know, as far as kids in college, it's like, try a major out. If you don't like it, who cares? Go try another one, <laughs> you know, double yeah. major. And then you could drop one and add another, or have a minor or whatever. And then um. you exit, you know, you exit with a, a degree in business or or history or whatever. And you, maybe you go into business anyway, or maybe you don't, Yeah. you know, because, and if you need more education, you can probably go do that. And you're 21 and it's like ordering in a menu, right? It's like <laughs> who just try stuff. Yeah. So one of the things that you figure out is that when the stakes of a decision are really low, mm-hmm. you should just try stuff, literally mm-hmm. just try stuff how it works because one of the places that our decision making goes really, really, really sideways is that we, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we don't know about the world and mm-hmm. we haven't worked to refine the stuff that we do know enough. And we haven't started to figure out like how frequently things work out and how often they don't and how do we like things? And when things turn out a particular way, what's our reaction and all of this stuff. And you can only find that out through like poking at the world. So Mm -hmm. getting these opportunities where you you realize that the cost of the decision is pretty low, so it's a really low stakes decision, instead of like mulling over the menu for 20 minutes, like just order and see how it works out.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny because... I think if you had told me that, you know, when I was in uh, my 20s or or 19 or 18, I'd be like, how can you possibly say this is a low stakes decision? (laughs) You know, I don't think, you know, at at 20, like, I think my awareness would have been like, no, there's no way that this is a low stakes decision. This is a matter of life and death. The fact that I did, you know, this poorly on a test or the fact that, you know, I'm not going to have a job when I graduate.
1: Yeah. And what I would say to somebody who was feeling that anxiety is go talk to a bunch of adults. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. ask them. How much did your grades in college really matter when you're, you know, go ask a 50 year old. When was the last time somebody asked you your GPA, mm-hmm. you know, ask them, Hey, what did you think that you were going to do as an adult? And what did you end up doing as an adult? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously there's, there's certain professions where you're going to have a higher, you know, a stronger relationship between what you do in college and what you do as an adult. Like obviously if you're a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you probably have a stronger relationship between those two things. Um, you know, if you go to engineering school, right? It's probably a stronger relationship. But I would just say like, go ask a bunch of people. Like when was the last time somebody asked you what your GPA was? When was the last time somebody asked you where you went to college? Did you finish college? You know, how many different career changes have you had? If I had asked you when you were 18, what you were, were you gonna do? Is this what you would have said that you were gonna do? Like, just go get some information from the world. And I think that those, those you know, 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds would be super surprised to Uh hear the answer because it's not what they're being told by society.
0: So I think one of the things that struck me uh, that you said in the book is that we can get better at separating outcome quality from decision quality, discover the power of saying, I'm not sure, and learn strategies to map out the future, become less reactive decision makers, building and sustain pods of fellow truth seekers to improve our decision making process and recruit our past and future selves to make fewer emotional decisions. So I think that the thing that really struck me was this idea of separating outcome quality from decision quality, because I think we tend to to couple both of them. Like we tend to to mix both of them together. And so I, I remember because I had uh, Michelle Florenzo here, who's, uh, uh, you know, or Michelle Florenzo, she was, uh, you know, uh, she would study decision, decision engineering at Stanford. And I said, well, I think it was a shitty decision. She's like, no, it was a shitty outcome. It was just a, it was, you know, the decision was a decision. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder how you manage to separate the two because i think that if even you look at the core of like all spiritual practices almost all of it is about detachment
1: right um so, so there's so many ways at this first of all i just want to say if that was a complete sentence that you just read i really need to edit myself better because that was a really long sentence um <laughs> that's what i was thinking as you were reading that oh i really should have edited that into two sentences.
2: <laughs> um.
1: Yeah. So I, so I think that, I I think it really has to do with like developing really good habits of mind.
2: Uh
1: Um, and, and you have to do that intentionally. And that, that's kind of the point of what I was saying in that impossibly long quote, um, about making sure that you've got, uh, people around you who are reinforcing these kinds of habits of mind that allow you to, to start to think about how do you separate outcomes and, and decision quality. So first of all, let me just start at the base, which is, you know, what are the confusions that we make between the two? And if we go back to this idea of, uh, you know, why are you ordering so much on a, you know, so quickly on a, um, I guess, reverse, let me say that again. Why are you taking so long to, to decide on, you know, what you ordered on a menu uh, versus maybe you're doing it really fast on something that's more complicated? It's because figuring out the quality of a decision is really complex. It's really hard. You have to figure out uh, what are the different options that were available to you. And then for each of those options, you have to figure out what are the set of possible outcomes that might have occurred from those options. You then have to assign a probability to each of those outcomes. And then you have to figure out what the expected value is of each of those outcomes so that you can then figure out across the set what the expected value is. And mm-hmm. the expected value is not necessarily money, right? It could be, uh, you could be thinking about how much time something costs you. You could think about how much happiness it brings you. You could think about how much health it brings you. So you, you also have to do like an exploration of your own values. Uh, and then, you know, you, ha- you, you can sort of broadly think about grouping the outcomes into sort of good and bad, depending on what your values are. Um, uh you have to think about payoffs right that ha- that has to do with expectancy and how much risk you're willing to take i mean there's like i mean and i'm not even done yeah you know and then compare across those options okay so that's like a lot
2: so <laughs> yeah
1: so so if you imagine like i mean and that's like if you're doing a if you're making a decision prospectively but now imagine it's retrospective and you're trying to sort of reconstruct all of that stuff i mean it it's just so opaque and so hard and so complicated and so mushy. But there is a thing that we absolutely know. We know how it turned out and we know whether that was good or bad. That is a thing that we can see right right there with our own eyes. There isn't any complication to it. It's very clear. It feels very certain. And so what we do is this thing called resulting, which is we say, oh, that's all really complicated. I don't don't know whether the decision was good or bad or not, but I do know whether the outcome was good or bad. And so I'm going to work backwards from the outcome to the quality of the decision. And I'm going to figure out, here's what I'm going to figure out. If the decision's good, then, I, I mean, if the outcome is good, rather, the decision must've been good. If the outcome is bad, the decision must've been bad. Problem solved. But the issue is that the problem is not anywhere near solved because the only time that that's a reasonable thing to be doing is when there is an incredibly strong relationship between the decision that you make and the outcome that you get. Ideally, if you're going to work backwards, it would be that the decision only could result in one outcome, Mm -hmm. right? So now, now we could work backwards in that particular case. So for example, um, if you're, two feet behind a vehicle in front of you and you slam on the accelerator, uh, there's kind of only one outcome that can occur there, right? (laughs) Right. You're going to ram into the car in front of you. Okay. So now Uh, we can work backwards. Like, did you make a good decision? (laughs) No, (laughs) he had a terrible outcome. And indeed it was a terrible decision. But um, if we add sort of more possible outcomes into the mix, like you go through a green light, you proceed through a green light at the speed limit. And now you get uh, in an accident, you know, can we work backwards from that outcome to what your decision quality is? Well, of course not. And that, that's just kind of true of, of most of the decisions that we make. When, when we make a decision, what, that, what the decision does is it defines the set of possible outcomes that could occur and sort of what that set looks like. So not just which outcomes are possible, but also how often those things will occur and it also defines what the payoffs are, but that that's an added layer of complexity that we don't need in order to get to where, you know, to this discussion. So let's just say right. it defines the set of possible outcomes and how likely each of those outcomes are, but it doesn't tell you exactly which outcome of those things will happen. Uh-huh. So you could have, you know, you could make a decision. There could be five reasonable outcomes that can kind of come from that. One of those things could happen 2% of the time. And guess what? That means it will happen 2% of the time. Hmm. So hopefully we're not working backwards from that thing that occurred 2% of the time in order to think that somehow if we made that decision again, that that thing would happen again. But this is actually exactly what we do. And this is how we think. So, you know, then the question becomes, Kind of to your point, like all right, well, how do you kind of disconnect yourself from that kind of thinking? Yeah. Um, And honestly, it's like by having really good people around you who help you work through this stuff. And what it means is that you have to try to do your best to reconstruct what the set of possible outcomes were. So when you get some sort of result, and you you find yourself, you know, it's a bad result, and you find yourself, oh, that was such a bad decision you know, or you get a really good result and you're like breaking your arm, patting yourself on the back for how great your decision was, it, you need to really train yourself to step back and say, well, let me think about what are what were the possibilities here? Like what mm-hmm. were all the things that could happen? Let me try to take a stab at how often those things would happen. Um, and this is particularly important when you get a good outcome. And the reason why it's particularly important when you get a good outcome is that, well, good outcomes feel really good. And it feels really good to to have something great happen and to say, well, look at what a great decision maker I am. Like, I get credit for that. Like, I made that happen. Uh, I mean, obviously, like, you feel really good about yourself under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so the willingness to dig down into that and say, well, let me just a second. Let me try to think about what were all the other ways that this could happen? You know, what, what are the probabilities of all those other ways um, that this could happen? It opens yourself up to a very sad occurrence, which sort of in poker terminology is, yeah, I won that hand, but actually I played it really poorly. Right? And, and that's not a discovery that most of us are eager to make. Uh-huh. And it's even true. If I say, yeah, I won that hand and I actually played it pretty well. But now that I've done some exploration, I realized there was an even better way to play it. That feels like kind of losing something too, right? So we, we tend to really kind of leave those good results unexamined and just allow ourselves to go ahead and result because it, it just kind of doesn't, it doesn't feel good.
0: It's interesting. That, that was kind of a perfect segue to my next question was you know this idea of the role that emotions play in decision making. So I think that, you know, particularly when you look at a past experience, right, you could say, OK, I'm going to be informed by this past experience or defined by it. And you know, they, they talk about this in uh, the Landmark Forum, where they say basically what happens is you make a filing error or something happens to you in your past, but you end up making a decision about how you're going to deal with that thing in the future. And so your future ends up looking exactly like the past. Mm. In some cases, that makes absolute sense, like the example you gave of, you know, oh, last time I stepped on the, the accelerator, I rear-ended somebody. Well, I'd be an idiot to do that again and not to expect the same result. Uh, but on the flip side of that, I'll give you a- another example I tried to do a long distance relationship once it made a mess of my life. And I was like, that's it. I'm never going to do that again. Mm. Um, and so I made a permanent decision based on a temporary experience. So I wonder how you deal with uh, emotions and the role of decision making and how you don't let the, the past define your future, but rather inform it.
1: Oh, so, you know, I, I, first of all, I, I just want to kind of set the terms of, You know, how we talk about these kinds of improvements that you make, Mm -hmm. because I I just want to make it really clear that that if I were to answer your your question, literally, I I would say, oh, you don't meaning, oh, no, there's no way to not let your emotions at all drive what you do in the future. Right. Uh, But what I will say is that you can reduce the influence. You can. Work so that you catch yourself more quickly, Mm -hmm. uh, when your emotions are are driving or, or let's say broadly, like your emotions or your, your desire to have like a positive self-image, right. Um, Mm -hmm. you can reduce, like you can reduce the effect of it. And, and so I just want, I just want everybody to sort of be realistic, right. Which is, I, I wouldn't want anybody to walk away from this conversation saying there's some sort of perfect, you Mm -hmm. know, Zen like existence. Where you're never resulting, you don't, you know, you don't fall into this trap. Your emotions aren't driving your decisions. You're not overly waiting like a single experience and using that to inform all future experiences. Um, and if I don't get there, anything short of that is failure. I want people to walk away from the conversation saying, we're all pretty bad at this stuff. There's a whole bunch of reasons why. Having to do with, you know, how our memory is constructed and the way that we act, we, we, we react to danger. Um, because, you know, obviously evolution really wants you to run away from danger, for example. Um, and our brains are the, the brains that we have. And so let's, let's say that we're measuring ourselves sort of like from the bottom versus the top and anything better than what we would do if we weren't thinking about this stuff is success. So I just want to sort of set those terms out like right away that it's as what, what, what are you, what are you really trying to achieve here? So Mm -hmm. I think, so, so first of all, you know, again, I mean, if you go through the exercise that I just did, where you take that, that relationship and you say, well, what were all the other ways that it could have turned out? If I had, as I went into the relationship, if I had imagined it's a year from now and this is a disaster. And I thought, well, why, why would it be a disaster? Right? So this is before you experience it as you're going into a long distance relationship, it's a year from now. And this is a disaster. Why? You would have been able to actually identify, I'm, I'm sure quite a few things that actually did turn out to be a disaster yeah. in advance. And then you could have actually said to yourself quite a few things. You could have said, well, Are there ways that I can reduce the probability of the things that might end up being disastrous for me? Are there ways that I can think about in advance what I'm going to do in response to some of these bad outcomes so that I'm not sort of scrambling around making bad decisions in the moment where I'm super emotional? Are there ways that I can think about um, increasing the chances that things work out by? setting structure and sort of limits around the way that I engage with this and thinking in advance, the points at which I should be reevaluating. And I'm just, I'll ask you, like, if you, if you had gone through that process in advance, do you think that you would have been (laughs) likely to have a better outcome?
0: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I don't know that the outcome would have changed, but I don't think my response would have been as terrible either. That's what I'm saying. Uh, I I would consider
1: that a better outcome.
0: Yeah, that is absolutely that would absolutely be a better outcome. Yes.
1: Right. So this this kind of gives us a clue into how do how do we sort of become less emotional? Yeah. And and there's two there's two broadly there's uh three three sort of verticals that we want to think about. Thing number one is what can we do prospectively in order to make it less likely that we're we're making decisions in a way that that's going to be driven by emotion. So that's Mm -hmm. sort of, let's call that pillar one. Uh, Pillar two is in the moment when we're feeling ourselves very emotional, what are the things that we can do in order to reduce the chances that we're making decisions under those circumstances? And pillar three is what can we do retrospectively to try to reduce the chance that emotions are driving the way that we're processing uh, what has happened to us. and then obviously, again, that, that might take us forward in a way that, that isn't particularly helpful. So, so let me just start in the moment first. So very often, um, and this is pretty path dependent, but when we've had sort of a series of unfortunate events to steal that, um, uh, we, we really get worked up, you know, and, and we, and, and you can feel what that feels like to be really worked up. Like you're in an argument with your partner Um, And you just get that feeling of like, first of all, you get this need to resolve right then. Um, You know, generally like your heart's racing, your cheeks are flushing, your thoughts are racing as well. Um, And we all sort of know what that feels like, right? Like, like we know what it feels like that moment that you thought you were going to get the promotion and you didn't. Right. Like you're just like, it's, everything is, you just get sucked down into the gravity of that moment. And it's just like, my life is so horrible. I can't believe this. I'm so unlucky. This is so unfair. Or you have to listen to me. You have to, you have to understand what I'm saying, right? Like there's all these things that kind of go along with that. So the first thing to do is to recognize what are the signs, both physiological and, and, you know, in terms of self-talk or actual talk that are really good signs that you're in a really emotional state. And you can write those things down. Like I just said what some of them are, but figure that out for yourself and write those things down and now just make a commitment uh, and tell other people who are in on it with you. That's kind of the help of a decision pod. When I'm in this state, you know, poke me or when you catch yourself saying that stuff, say, hold on a second. I got it. I have to take a breath. And then you can actually follow a checklist of questions. Um, And my favorite question, actually relating back to the conversation we had about the menu is, if I imagine it's a year from now, do I think that this moment will have ticked my happiness up or down at all? That's a really good question to ask yourself. So for a lot of things, the answer is no. Things that you're incredibly upset about in the moment, the answer is very often no. Um, And once you sort of realize that, you can, you kind of, can kind of get it into perspective, right? Um, if you're like, you can ask yourself another question. If it's a, a week from now, and I imagine that in this state, I continue to make decisions. Do I imagine that a week from now, I'm going to be happy with the decisions that I made? Or am I likely to have regretted them? Mm-hmm. So the answer to that is very often Yes. Yeah. And now you can do something about that, which is stop making decisions right then. Just say, I need to take some <laughs> space. I got to take a moment because I just did a little time traveling here. And I yeah. realized, oh, I'm going to be really sad with the decisions that I'm about to make if I continue to make decisions in this, in this, you know, in this state. So like you can imagine, like if you're in a fight with your partner um, and you were to take a moment, you say, oh, I've got all these really bad signs going on. Do I think in a week that the next thing that comes out of my mouth, I'm going to regret? right? Yes. Okay. That's a good moment to say, let's take some space. Let me walk away from the decision and come back when I feel a little bit better. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, I talk about this in my book, but this is this kind of time traveling exercise where what you're really doing is causing yourself to imagine how is this going to look to the future version of me as I look back on this and in doing so it, uh, sort of just by definition, it quiets down the emotional part of your brain because in order to do this kind of time traveling experiment where you're sort of imagining yourself in the future um, you have to recruit the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex acts in an inhibitory relationship to the limbic system. And so you actually are quieting your emotions down through doing these kinds of time travel exercises. So that that's what you can do in the moment. Right. And, um, like, for example, like I've had people actually like see me on the phone with a really frustrating customer service agent. Uh And, uh, this just happens to be like one of my strengths. I, I just happen to be very calm in those situations, but I didn't used to be, um, I, I used to actually be very upset in those situations and I would get very upset with the customer service agent, but now I'm very, very calm. And I've had people watch me in those situations. How did you do that? And honestly, I'm just time traveling. You know, I'm saying like, if if I imagine it's a week from now and I got what I wanted out of this interchange, do I think that it involved the yelling that I really want to do in this second? Mm -hmm. You know, and the answer to that is no. And so then I don't yell because I'm quickly doing this kind of, as I feel my emotions going up, I'm doing these sort of time travel things. Okay, so that's that's like that first thing. Like, what do you do in the moment when you get sucked down into the gravity of your, own emotions. And then uh, the next thing is what we talked about before, which is like, how are you thinking in advance so that you're much less likely to be making decisions driven by emotion in the moment? And that is, is another time travel example, but in a state where you're calm. So Mm -hmm. you're entering into a decision, like I'm, I'm thinking about getting into a long distance relationship and you imagine it's a year from now and this has gone horribly. Let me write a narrative for why I think that it went horribly. Um, And it's just this thing of like, you know, like when you're at the base of the mountain, all you can see is what's right in front of you. And in in the case of a long distance relationship, maybe all you see that's right in front of you is like how much you're into the other person. And obviously, (laughs) you would climb over like the biggest boulder ever in order to get to them. And this is all you can see is what's right in front of you. But when you get to the top of the mountain, you can see all the paths. And you can see all of the, the obstacles that might be in your way. And by identifying those, you can now start to ask yourself some questions about those. Like, when I come up against that obstacle, what do I think I will do? Let me think about that in advance. How, is there a way around that obstacle that that I can see so that I never actually come up against it? Right? Like, so on and so forth. And so what that means is that you just end up... uh already having thought about things in advance, already Uh having thought about how to increase success, decrease failure. And like, sometimes you might discover like, I'm looking back at this and I see that failure is so likely that the payoff for this isn't high enough that I think that I should embark on it at all. Mm -hmm. Right? Like that might sometimes be the answer. And isn't it nice to find that out in advance? right? Because you've actually done this exercise. So that's, that's this sort of sort of prospective Uh thing. And then retrospectively um, it has to do with putting these outcomes into context, right? So, so when you feel yourself uh, thinking about, uh, you know, an outcome and, and sort of having this connectedness to it really take the time to put that outcome into the context of all the things that could have occurred at the moment that you um, entered onto that journey. So for example, to say like, well, there were a whole set of possible outcomes. Like it could have ended up in marriage. It could have mm-hmm. ended up after, it could have ended after a month. Um, it could have gone on for a while and then we became best friends, but we never, we didn't continue romantically. Uh, you know, um, my partner could have decided they couldn't stand to be away for two seconds and actually move back. You know, I'm just making these up, but you sort of figure right, those right. out. And then you take yeah. a stab at how likely you think any of those things were. And the good news is some of those things you can look up, right? Like you, you can go find, um, how often long distance relationships work. Out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So Which we,
0: isn't that often, it turns out. Right.
1: But you, so you can go find that out, right? And then yeah. you can see like, oh, actually this wasn't going to work out that much. And now you can take that knowledge with you into the future so that as uh, you're considering another long distance relationship, it's not that it's a zero. It's that right. if you understand what the likelihood of that outcome is, That you can now start to put that into context and think of of what the payoff for you is, whether it'd be worth it for you to take that risk.
0: Hmm. Wow. Wow. So (laughs) there's one other thing that uh, that came to mind for me as, as, you know, throughout our conversation is, you know, how do you make the distinction between taking responsibility for your decisions and blaming yourself for the outcomes? Because I think that so often we confuse responsibility and blame.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it, that's an interesting question, because I think
1: blame, I think blame is just a word that should just go out of people's vocabulary. <laughs>
3: um,
1: I, I think that what happens is that once you sort of use the word blame, it does become very outcome dependent, right? Because mm. you're not really blaming somebody for the decision. You're blaming somebody for how it turned out. You know, it's like you took this stupid shortcut to the airport and there was an accident along the way that made it so we missed our flight. I'm blaming, like, that's your fault. I'm blaming you for that. Right. Whereas I think about responsibility is just in general across the board, thinking about responsibility for creating good decision process. So all I really care about is, did you own the fact that you were thinking about, that you thought about it, right? That you thought about mm-hmm. the decision. that That's what I would prefer for you to think about in terms of responsibility. Yeah. And that it, the responsibility goes two ways, right? So blame, it sort of feels like only goes one way, like I get to blame you, right? Mm-hmm. But responsibility, I feel like goes two ways in the sense that, I should hold you I should hold, should hold you responsible and accountable for a good decision process, right? But you also should hold me responsible for not being reactive to the way it turned out and not you know over you know sort of overly connecting the decision to the outcome and being willing to see the decision in the, in in context. So that's the thing that I think that's really nice about um you know creating a good decision group is I mean if we just exchange Interchange the word uh, you know accountability for responsibility, which I think is sort of where we'd like to get to. It's that I get to hold you accountable to trying to strive toward a more you know rational decision process, trying to strive toward thinking probabilistically, trying to strive toward embracing uncertainty and uh you know and really trying to think about how do I be open minded to other people's points of view, how do I do these really good internal audits of my own knowledge, but you also hold me accountable to that as well. And blame feels like such a one-way street where accountability feels like a two-way street. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's really, I think what, what we want to be striving for. Wow. Uh,
0: well, I, I feel like I could talk to you for like three hours <laughs> about this. Like it just, this seems like a, a rabbit hole that runs incredibly deep.
1: It does. It does. It's really like, yes, you <laughs> It's, it, it is, you can bury like deep the into note. the ground.
0: Yeah. Like this is, it's kind of like, I'm going to show you the matrix and by the way, good luck out there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: It's, but, but I mean, I think that, I think that again, the thing that I really want to get across to people is like just a little bit of change in terms of the way that you think is, yeah. is going to make a big difference and it takes practice and you shouldn't, you know, I catch myself resulting all the time uh-huh. and I'm just happy I catch it when i do because i know that if i weren't practicing this type of thinking that i wouldn't catch it mm. so it's about that you know building upon building upon building and understanding kind of like uh, the way that compound interest works right and that this is the same way that these very small changes this you know what like i caught a couple of extra examples of that i thought a little bit more rationally about that i You know, I realized I I was less quick to judge over here or less quick to blame over here or whatever it is. Like these small changes really do have very big effects. And then eventually one day, like hopefully you're not yelling at any customer service agents anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Um, Well, this has been amazing. I think that makes a fitting place to wrap up our conversation. I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: isn't everybody? Mm. I mean, that's my honest answer. Like, isn't everybody? I kind of feel like, you know, this, this is, this is something. And let me just tell you like a brief poker story in order to tell you why I answer it that way. When I first started playing poker, I was like an asshole in the sense of my brother was, a world-class poker player and he was teaching me and I knew so much more than everybody else. And when other people were doing things that I did not understand, my first instinct was, you know, to to think they have no idea what they're doing and look at how much better I am than they are at this game. And, you know, maybe like a, a year into playing or something, I, you know, as you sort of progress in the game and you start sort of figuring out new things, for yourself, I kind of looked back on some of the things that I was like incredibly dismissive of and what other people were doing. And I was like, Hey, wait a minute. Like I'm doing that thing now. So maybe I just didn't like, I just didn't understand what they were doing. I wasn't ready to see what they were doing. I certainly didn't see the value in what they're doing, but I'm doing it now. Wow. I was like a total freaking jerk. Number one, I mean, not that I was saying this necessarily, I mean, I wasn't saying this out loud to other people. I was like, you know, you know, my my uh, you know, self-talk was very like I was I was a jerk to those people in my head. Um and then I I I had this moment of horror of, oh my gosh, I lost so many opportunities to learn. Like maybe I could have figured out that I should have been doing this thing like way earlier if I hadn't been so dismissive of that person. At which point I realized, like, you know what, here's the thing. Even if someone is mostly, almost all, not as good as I am, I think it should be my job to try to figure out the thing they're doing better than me. Because I, now that I'm thinking about it, have a hard time believing that there is a person who could be sitting at a poker table where literally, I mean, who has some experience, who literally, like a hundred percent of the things that they're doing, are worse than what I do. And so I made it my job, like when I sit down at a table, I'm going to try to figure out the thing. And sometimes it was several things, but I was going to try to find out the the thing that they were doing that was better than me. Um, and it it, t- it really changed my view of the game. It changed my my view of how, you know, I thought about other people—it definitely changed. You know, my learning curve as I was exploring things, and sometimes you know I would explore and I'd be like, "Oh, actually, that's not so good," but then I would understand more, so much more about my own strategies and my own understanding of the game. So that exploration, in and of itself, had like so much value. And I think that's the thing. It's like when you're when you come across anybody that you meet. Try to figure out the one thing that's really unmistakable about them because it's there, it exists and make it your job to find it.
0: Hmm. That has to be one of my favorite answers I've ever heard to that question. Oh
1: my God. (laughs) Okay, yay.
0: Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and, and share your story and your insights with the listeners. This has been super eye-opening. It's one of those conversations I feel like I'm going to have to go back to 100 times. Oh, now I well, want to re-read, reread your book after after having this conversation.
1: Oh, awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was really fun.
0: Absolutely. And uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to?
1: So really, that, the kind of all-purpose place to go is AnnieDuke.com. Uh, you can find out about my book there. Um, you can... Uh, get in touch with me there. And I actually really love hearing from people who've heard me speaking or read my book. Um, just questions and conversation, whatever. Um So there's a contact form there. Uh, there's also archives of my newsletter, which goes out about once every week. The reason why I say about is because I'm in the middle of my next book. And so it's a little bit slower right now. But um when I'm not actually in the middle of writing a book, it goes out every week. Uh, you can find archives there. And if you want to subscribe, um if you like the content, you know, I'd love for people to subscribe to it. It is free, except for, I guess, the email box clutter. <laughs> um, uh, but other than that, it is free. Um, so hopefully people will look for me there. And then the other place I would love for people to go is to howidecide.org, which is a nonprofit that I founded. Um, and we're trying to build the field of decision education for youth to, to mm. really start to get these kinds of tools and strategies and tactics and understanding even just like what is a decision, what's a habit. How do you think about your own values? Um, How do you make a decision? How do you think probabilistically? This kind of thing into middle schoolers with a focus on underserved um, youth. So hopefully people will go and look at howidecide.org and join the cause.
0: Amazing. Well, we'll link up all that stuff in the show notes. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,